Welcome to the Fitbox Podcast. This is your host, Joseph Frankie. Glad you're here listening. On our podcast, we talk about two main things. First and foremost, we interview members of Fitbox so that way you can hear their stories about how they're repaying debt, how they're saving for retirement, buying homes, all this type of stuff, really to give you motivation and some different ideas. That's the first thing we talk about. The second thing our podcast do is we take individual finance topics and go through them in more detail so that way you can say, does this apply to me and how does this apply to my plan? So if you have questions or you want to sign up for Fitbucks, you can do so in the show notes, fitbucks.com, build your profile, schedule a call. We'll be talking to you soon. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to uh, the show. Glad to have you guys here. If you're listening on the Fitbucks podcast, welcome. If you're watching on the, on the Fitbucks YouTube channel, welcome there as well. Always, as you know, like we always say, try to get the word out. If you haven't already subscribed to either one of those, please do so. We have a special guest today, uh, Josh from Neo Home Loans as well. Like if you guys are watching this on their channel and, and for Neo Home Loans, be sure to subscribe to them. I mean, Josh is always, you know, putting out great, great content on the on the housing market. And again, if you're part of our audience too here at Fitbucks, I would go on and, and make sure I'm following Josh when it comes to all things real estate. So Welcome again back to the show. It's been a while. We've all been a little bit hectic, um, you know, doing updates and whatnot. How's uh, how's everything been going for you? Thanks, Joe. It's great to be here. It's great to be here with the Fitbucks community. You know, th- there's been a lot of headlines um, in the media around. I saw one the other day, Joe, that said, um, you know, we are in the midst of an 80s style housing recession. Uh, and I thought, wow, that is a scary headline. What does that mean? And as you read through the article, uh, there's basically they were taking excerpts from a couple of economists from Wells Fargo that were focused on kind of the housing market and and, and really what they were talking about and, and what most people have been experiencing is we've had this massive rise in interest rates. And as mortgage rates have climbed from 2.75 to uh, as of you know the, the last week of October, we were north of 8%. We've come back a little bit over the last week, which we'll get into. But that has caused a dramatic pullback in demand. The number of people who can qualify or are willing to accept those payments at a 7 and 8% rate is less than the number of people who are excited about buying a house at 3 4 5 and 6% mortgage rates. So the recession that that article was talking about, Joe, and what most people have been reading about is there's been a drastic reduction in the number of real estate transactions. In fact, the Mortgage Bankers Association reports that the number of mortgage applications are are at the low point since 1995. So the number of transactions are way, way down. And there's multiple reasons for that. One of them is the affordability factor with higher mortgage rates. The other one is that there's, um, I've got a graph on this, but 80% of the mortgages in the United States are at a 5% or less rate. So those people aren't real. I'm sitting at a 2.75 and selling my home and moving to an 8% rate isn't very exciting. So, you know, you've got a little bit of the lockdown effect going on, but to answer your question, the number of transactions are way down, but surprisingly, housing prices are have been resilient. In fact, I've got some slides we'll, we'll get into that most of the major market uh, valuation companies like CoreLogic and Black Knight and such, 
uh, Zillow. Um, most of those um, tracking, those value tracking companies are showing that we're at an all-time high and have had about eight months of appreciation, which is really shocking. And I think we'll, we'll get into that at some point. Like, how could that possibly be? But that's really what's been going on in the housing market. That's been the story for 2023. Yeah, no, it's been it's been amazing because it's like I for for what we've seen at Fitbox and just you know a lot of people that that I talk to they're like, well, what's your opinion on this? And I haven't dug too deep into the, into the data. I just kind of gloss over it and see some numbers, and it's like, okay, like I, I get that. I don't need to dive deeper into this. But you know, it, let me know if you think this quote is true or, the, true or this opinion or elaborate on it or tell me, yeah, no, that, that opinion is not correct at all. I mean, what, I, what I'm starting to see is that your quote unquote middle class, lower class, whatever it is, they're completely priced out of the housing market. True. And that there's so much that, that you like you talked about, housing prices are still going up because that that quote unquote upper class or like where I live at out here, a few like 20 minutes outside of Austin, like people moving here so much that are like higher mid-level managers of companies, they still have money and they're still paying for these places. And a lot of them are still paying a lot in cash because they don't want to pay the interest rates. And so like where we see it, where we're at, we had a little bit of a dip in the housing prices, but not much. And that is starting, like we're starting to see houses around us, like stay for sale longer. Mm-hmm. But it's most of the time it's because they're flawed. Like my neighbor's house down the street backs up against like a major street and nobody wants to buy that. It's like, yeah, that's why it's on the market. My neighbor's yeah. own neighbor's house. They have like a pool and everything. It's a great house, beautiful house. They sold it in, in a week and a half. Yep. So it's like this drastic thing. But from a high level, that's what I'm basically seeing is like, you know, and I haven't looked dug into the numbers, like I said, but it's like, I see the price support there because that money that higher net wealth money is still there. And I think the Fed just came out with a report like two days ago that basically said that too. The median income is shooting up a lot since 2020, but the average income is really going up. So that's showing that chasm. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because I've had that question quite a bit at like webinars and workshops and just conferences that I've been at over the last month or two. And I just want to get your thoughts on on that. I think your insight there or you know what what you're kind of, um, alluding to is absolutely right. And, and, and I want to add a little color. So first of all, what the Federal Reserve did during um, the COVID recession was helpful up until a certain point and then massively destructive to the middle class and lower class thereafter because it led to inflation. So what you saw was I believe the number was $9 trillion in fiscal and monetary stimulus, which was the Fed essentially printing money out of thin air and using that money to drop on the U.S. economy in the form of checks, drop on businesses in the form of grants that didn't have to be repaid, used to uh, manipulate long-term interest rates. So the Federal Reserve actually entered the free market economy, the bond market, and started buying our own treasury bonds to drive down the, the interest rates or yields on those bonds. They entered in the mortgage market and started, they were the largest buyer of mortgages to drive down the interest of mortgage rates. And that was great. Like we, you know, you know, it was like the, the CPR on your chest, like we, the economy came back to life. The problem is 
they kept giving us drugs, financial stimulus, for far too long. And that led to this inflation. So what's the result of the inflation? Well, home prices went up insane. Um, gas prices, food prices, rent, um, mortgage rates, because mortgage rates always follow inflation. Well, in the long term, they always follow inflation. There can be some manipulation short term. And so now we have this environment where exactly as you said, Joe, the upper third of the economic spectrum still has enough money to pay these interest rates and pay these home prices. The middle and the bottom third are essentially locked out of the housing market. And unfortunately, that's a lot of the younger people. Unfortunately, that's a lot of minorities. Unfortunately, that's a lot of underprivileged people that the gap between owning assets and renting has just gotten a lot bigger. So, so that is absolutely true. And we have to think to ourselves, you know, um, I think Ronald Reagan said the most dangerous words in the, in the English language are, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. And we have to, we have to always look at that. Like it's popular for the government to come in and to, to announce stimulus and help for the economy. Like we're, we're here to save everybody with our, with our dollars there's always unintended consequences. And we're living through that right now. So that's the first thing I would comment. You're, you're spot on. The second thing I would comment is Ferraris are unaffordable. Lamborghinis are unaffordable. Porsches are unaffordable. Mercedes are unaffordable. But guess what? They sold more of those vehicles in 2023 than they ever have before. So when people say the housing market's unaffordable, it's going to crash. That's not the way economics work. I mean, it is a factor for sure. But what drives price is supply and demand. And even though demand is down because that bottom and middle tier of the economic classes no longer can, uh, can literally afford to enter the home ownership market, there's still enough buyers in that top third that it is more demand than there is supply up until this point. And that is what's caused prices to continue to go up. And by the way, Joe, if you would have asked me, hey, Josh, what do you think would happen to real estate values if mortgage rates went from 2.75 to 8.25 in the mat in under 18 months? I would have said 10, 15% decline in real estate prices. At least. At least, dude, like, I mean, that is just crazy. But in spite of those headwinds, which by the way, mortgage interest rates have never tripled in the span of 18 months. They've, they've, they've gone up, right? But you're talking about a 300% increase in mortgage rates inside of two years. That's never happened before. Um, and, and the question that we should answer in this show is, Joe, how is that possible? How is it possible that mortgage rates have, have virtually tripled in under two years, and yet home prices have continued to go up? So that's what I'd like to get to at some point. Yeah, no, we're definitely get there, but just you know, to add some, you know, comments on what you said because you hit everything you know, on the head, and I just want to highlight and emphasize some of these points going back. Actually, three specific things. So, like, like oh eight, for example, we go back to oh eight, and I remember telling people then that the Fed was doing the wrong thing. 
Yeah. That that was the perfect opportunity to get all this stuff out of the markets. And that, yes, it would hurt those that had equity in their houses, which are your primary voting block. And that was a voting year. So you know that they're not politicians are not going to go for letting that real estate market crash and having people's net wealth go with it. Bad right? year for that. But it would have been an awesome opportunity. Like politicians are up on their soapboxes talking about having middle class and lower class be able to buy houses. Well, if they would have let it crash, instead of having to manipulate it with horseshit uh, mortgage products and driving interest rates down to basically zero, you wouldn't have to do that because the home affordability would have like would have gone up because home prices would have crashed so much that in lower income people would have been able to actually buy at that point, generate wealth. And I said back then, I said what they just did to to put this thing on quote unquote life support. Like it, it was all for political reasons, in my opinion, but I was like, the coming issue down the road is going to be far worse than 08. And people are, when I said that back in 08, people are like, oh, you think it's going to be in a year, two years from now? I'm like, I don't know what it's going to be. It could be in five years. It could be in 20 years or 25 years. But when this cycle hits of what they did, it's going to be ugly. And the reason why I, I went through that is because a couple of reasons. Like when we're asking like, hey, how can that have be, you know, people still buying these houses and whatnot. In 08, we put $600 million into the market. $600 million. In 2020, in direct stimulus, they put in over $6 trillion. So over 10 times the amount. And you looked what happened in the housing market and the stock market during that time period, those 12 years. It was ridiculous. Valuations, all that stuff. Why? Because there's just money flowing. And so that's why at the end of last year, when a lot of people are asking me about like, well, what about, what about the stock market? Like it's going down. Like, you know, housing, like stock market is going to crash 50 or 60%. I was like, well, there's a lot of bad information coming out. So I can see why you're saying that. But it might only go down like 10 or 20%. And there's so much money out there that it could keep going up. That's why like in our updates, like for the stock market updates, I kept telling people, don't just pull your money out. Like keep investing into it, especially in your retirement accounts, because it, it, there's a good possibility that it could keep going up. Now, every number and the numbers are still shitty. The numbers haven't gotten better. <laughs> they're, they're shit. But this year we saw a pretty big rebound in the stock market. Why? Because there's money everywhere. And it goes to the same reasoning as why the real estate market is not going down. Like mm -hmm. there's money everywhere. And like you brought up the $9 trillion between direct and indirect in the United States. That's just the U.S. Right. That's international money. Great point. Right. Like think about how much other money is in the market for international. And so like around this time last year, like I did a back of the napkin type of valuation on homes and around my area and said, look, like if these things drop 25 or 35%, I'm looking at buying because I did, you know, some comparisons about, you know, when rates were low versus this. And like you said, if you shot up those interest rates, keeping all else equal, that's about the drop that I had calculated. And I was like, look, if they get in this range, I'm buying. Yep. But I'm prepared that they're not going to. I don't need to buy. And guess what? They dropped a little bit, but not that much. Yep. And so, yeah, it's just people don't understand the quantity of the amount of money that pushed into the market. And like you said, the inventory levels are still depressed. They're still not high. So the supply side is still low and mm -hmm. that demand side is still there. So, <clears throat> um, but with that being said, um, we talked a lot about where we're at now. Why is this going on right now? So on and so forth. We're almost at the end of the year. So going into 2024, spring is historically the buying season of the year, all that type of stuff. You know, what do you see 
you know, just in general from all the data you're looking at, what do you see coming up over the next, you know, three to, to let's call it 15 months, that time, like that time period? Yeah. Well, we're going to bounce back and forth here today, Joe, on a presentation that I've been traveling around the country giving. Uh, I was just in Houston talking to 70 realtors uh, three weeks ago. And the, the presentation is really built around taking a, a balanced look at reasons to be bearish about housing and reasons to be bullish about housing. And so maybe we could bounce back and forth about those a little bit. And, and, and I'd love your, your thoughts on it. Um, so I think we'll go there. But let me, let me preface this by saying that um, the most recent Fannie Mae home buyer sentiment report came out the end of October, for October, the first week of November. And in that report, they reported that 84% of potential home buyers believed that the market was headed for a crash, that mortgage rates were headed higher, and the only way to, to restore affordability was through a major housing correction. And in summary, this was a terrible time to buy a home. The contrarian in me says, if 84% of people believe that, then now we, should really, <laughs> we should get curious about what the other side of the equation is, because that sounds like a lot of pessimism to me. And usually if you study economics and, and financial markets, usually the opposite happens in those types of situations. So, so let's, let's kind of get into this. Um, and, and I'll start off with just saying that I don't blame those, those folks that filled out that, like, I'm not making less of those people that have that opinion in any way, shape or form. Because here's some headlines from, let's call it the smartest people on Wall Street, right? This is Morgan Stanley. This is Zillow. This is Goldman Sachs. This is Economist at Realtor.com. This is CoreLogic. And basically, they all conflict each other in their, in, in their uh, ideas on what's going to happen in the housing market. So Morgan Stanley says, we forecast home prices in 2023 to finish the year flat which is wrong, by the way, they're going to finish the year up. And then in 2022, uh, oh, excuse me, 2023 is flat versus 2022, which is incorrect, that, that we're going to finish the year up. And then they believe that in 2024, housing prices are going to go down 2%, all right? So that's Morgan Stanley, smartest guys in Wall Street, right? Or, or amongst them. Zillow says typical home values are predicted to rise 6.5% from July 23 through July 24, exact opposite opinion. Uh, Goldman Sachs says we're revising our home price forecasts to 1.8% appreciation for 2023 to three, uh, uh, excuse me, up to 1.8%. It was previously lower. And then in, in 2024, they believe prices are going to go up 3.5%. So they were admitting they're wrong and they're revising their forecasts midway through the year. Realtor.com uh, economists say we've revised our home forecast, which means they were wrong. And now they're revising it uh, from growth to decline. So Realtor.com thinks there's going to be a decline of 0.6% for 2023 uh, as a whole year. This came out in the middle of the year. They were wrong. It's going to end up up. So they revised their forecast to, from up to down, and then they were wrong uh, by the time we get to the end of the year, which I'll show you in just a minute. And CoreLogic, I mean, these guys have more data than any human on earth. 
And they're saying U.S. home prices increasing to 4.3% by July, by June 2024. And that was a revision of their previous forecast that was way off. So my point is, everybody's been wrong and everybody's been revising and they're still all in conflict with one another. So if you're confused on housing, you know, join the crowd. Everybody's confused <laughs> on housing. So, uh, I, you know, I, I just want to, uh, I, I want to make sure that we don't, pick on people by saying housing market is confusing. Everybody's confused. So I'm going to quickly go through these. I'm going to go through these really quickly. And Joe, if you want to pause somewhere, just hit pause. But I want to make sure we have time to get through a lot of this stuff. Yeah. So I'm going to go through the seven reasons to be bearish on housing. And these come from all of these economic reports that I read. So number one reason to be bearish on housing is that mortgage rates could remain elevated or go even higher. 100%. The US Treasury is auctioning an unbelievable amount of treasury bonds and treasury bills into the bond market. And that is causing yields, which is a, another word for, for, for rates, to go up. Because uh, between June 1st and October 1st, the Treasury sold $2 trillion of bills and bonds in order to um, in order to refill the treasury, remember after the debt ceiling thing that happened in June, and in order to pay for the deficit that the U.S. is running, we're spending way more money as a country than we're bringing in, and that means the treasury has to sell uh, U.S. Treasury bonds and bills to finance those deficits, and it's more bonds being sold into the bond market then the buyers of those bonds can digest. And so they are saying, we're only going to buy that level of bonds if you have if you offer us higher rates. I'm kind of simplifying that. But here's the thing. I, I believe that in spite of that risk, which is the number one risk, it's pretty likely we're headed for a recession. And the reason that I say that is there's been an inflation spike what's called an inverted yield curve, rapid rise in interest rates, and an oil price shock, that when those four things happen in unison, it's almost guaranteed that we enter a recession. And recessions are deflationary by definition and bring with them lower mortgage rates. So while I think that this is the largest risk in the market in terms of what could cause a housing recession, Joe, the odds of a recession, in my opinion, are high enough that I think it's unlikely that we see mortgage rates continue to go up above that kind of peak we saw at eight and a quarter. Let me bring you back in for, for some, some comments here. What, what, what would you have to add there? Well, my, my big one on that is the inverted yield curve. Yeah. Um, I mean, because I use that for stock investments. I mean, it's one of the, the most accurate predictors like that there is. And I mean, we've been inverted now for a while. It's not, yep. that's not a new thing. And it's like, this is not normal. Something has to get. Yes. Like, it's just not, you know, and I'd throw one on there. I know you said there's seven, but we're only going through four so far. I mean, you have geopolitical risk going on now too. So, yeah. you know, how, where does that get thrown in? You know, typically, you know, I look at other statistics too. Um, we have a presidential election year coming up. And so typically things are flat just across all markets. Things are, especially the stock market, because that's what I, again, that's what I traditionally look at. But in, in 
election years for presidential elections, things are typically flat and down. And so when you 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 look at those, that data from that perspective, and then also all these other things like you like you brought up, like those are not good things, <laughs> not good at all. Um, but the markets can you know stay irrational for a long time, and sometimes there is rationality, like like we talked about earlier. So much money being dumped in, like wealthy people still have a tremendous amount of of, of money, like they're still buying, like. But those pressures. Again, I agree with your point on the mortgage rates. Do I see them going up to 12%, 10%, 11%? Probably not. Um, mostly due to those pressures that you just brought up. So yeah, I, I agree with all of that. So, um, But yeah, the 84%, bad time to buy a house. I always love hearing that stuff because that that sets off my alarms to go and <laughs> potentially look at stuff. So yeah. That's right. There's there's less people out there willing to buy means that there's usually some opportunity somewhere in the market. I'm going to jump around here just a little bit because I realize yeah. we've got you know about 20, 25 minutes left here, Joe. Yeah. I want to get to that question that we that we threw up, which is the biggest conundrum in the housing market, in my opinion. And that is how is it possible that mortgage rates went from 2.75 approximately? to north of 8%, and we've continued to see appreciation. So let's take a look at the U.S. real estate values month over month throughout 2023. And on the left-hand axis here, we've got Case-Shiller, which is considered the gold standard in terms of real estate valuations, residential real estate. You've got FHFA, which is a government entity that has all their measuring uh, statistics. You have CoreLogic, Black Knight, and Zillow. And in any one month, their data set can be you know, skewed, delayed. But if you look at all five of them and you look at them month over month, you can really pick up on the trend in, real, in residential real estate. So if we look what happened in January of 2023, which is historically one of the slowest months in real estate, you had three of the five data companies reporting negative valuations. This negative 0.2, Joe, means down 0.2% as compared to the previous month. So we're seeing home prices nationwide edging down just a little bit. FHFA and Black Knight were the outliers. They said that the values were up 0.1%. But my guess is if three of the five saying it's down, we saw a pullback in prices in many areas of the country right around this time of the year. But then something interesting happened in February. In February, four out of the five reported positive appreciation month over month. And then March, April, May, June, July, August, five out of five reported positive appreciation month over month for all five of those data aggregators. And then if you, if you uh, the highlighted in yellow here um, means all time highs. And what that means is in June of 2022, that was kind of like the peak of the real estate uh, market in terms of the number of, you know, um, the number of uh, the appreciation rate and the valuation. And then as rates kind of moved through six up to 7%, people were like, whoa, wait a minute. And we saw values cool in the fourth quarter of 2022. And then in 2023, despite mortgage rates rising, we continued to see this appreciation and now returning to all-time highs. Now, interestingly enough here, Joe, in 
uh, September, uh, Zillow's reporting that negative 0.1%. This is September of 2023. For those of you who aren't looking at my screen, Black Knight and CoreLogic reported positive. But we can see the 8%, you know, as we approach 8% mortgages, we're probably going to see slowing of appreciation. Um, but if we look at the year, look at this. This is crazy, Joe. 2023 pace. Case Schiller says we're going to be up 6%. FHFA says 7%. CoreLogic says 8%. If we kind of forecast this out through, throughout the, the rest of the year, um, Black Knight 7%, Zillow 6%. That's a 6.8% um, forecasted appreciation for 2023 in spite of mortgage rights peaking above 8%. That's just crazy. Um, this just came out today, Joe, is the most recent piece of data I could get from CoreLogic. So I wanted to throw this in here. This is September 2023. According to CoreLogic, they had forecasted month over month positive appreciation at 0.1% and year over year at 2.6%. That was their forecast for the year. But the current pace that they're showing is month over month appreciation at 0.3% and annual year-over-year -year appreciation at 4.5%. So let me pause, let me get your feedback, and then I want to try to answer how that is humanly possible for our audience. Yeah, no, it, it's, again, it's amazing because, again, going into 2023, all those indications that you talked about in terms of recession, they were there then too. Like, yes like these are not new things like for them to be here for like a 12 month period and, and no recession yet. Unprecedented it, really. Yeah. It's like, wow, what else is going on there? And I keep going back to telling people, it's like, again, you don't understand the amount of money that was dumped yeah. into the economy. Like this is the, the, the repercussion of that. And it's yeah. not just what happened since 2020. I was like, you know, we dropped the, the interest rates on the Fed, like we dropped them for basically 10 years before they started going back up. That's another form of stimulus. Like if the economy was that good beforehand, why did they keep interest rates for down low for so long? The answer to me is the economy was really good or it really sucked and nothing ever got fixed. That's why they kept it down so low. And you just keep the the, the punch bowl out there for so long you're going to have some issues, right? I mean, similar thing happened in Japan years ago. Um, you know, they, they're like, oh, it's only temporary, like these 0% interest rates. And their economy sucks so bad that for the last 30 years, they've kept 0% interest rates or 20 years, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, we don't get to that same point with all these numbers where it's like we have to keep stuff at 0% because like it's so bad that we have to do that. Um, but that's why it's kind of trending, but, um, to, to your point, Joe, you know, there are, there are natural cycles in, in life. Like, you know, the, 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 the planet has natural cycles. So does the business cycle. Well, what am I talking about? Well, in the physical universe on planet earth, we have winter, we have spring, we have summer, we have fall and the cycle repeats. There's a similar cycle to our lives. We're babies, we grow older, we die. So there are these cycles that are natural phenomenon in on planet Earth, in the physical universe, with life as we know it, the natural cycles that we all know about. Day, night, 
sunrise, sunset, right? These are cycles that we all know about. Well, the same is true when it comes to the business cycle. There is a springtime where there's massive amounts of new opportunities. There's summer times when things hit all-time highs. There's fall when the business cycle starts to slow down and we see the cracks. And there's winters when the, the inefficient businesses fail and that makes room for the spring and the new businesses, the new shoots to, to come up in the business cycle. And, and what you're alluding to, Joe, is that the government, the Federal Reserve, the amount of debt being issued by the Treasury, they've altered the natural cycle of business. And as a repercussion, nothing makes sense anymore. We're looking at these recession indicators that are 18 months old, we haven't hit a recession. We're looking at mortgage rates that have gone from two to 8%, but we haven't seen a housing crash in terms of prices. Nothing really makes sense. Well, that distortion is coming from the distortion that's happening on the money supply and on interest rates that comes from the government. And that's really what you're what you're describing there, I believe. Yeah, and, and it's not just the monetary side, it's the policy side too. Sure. Like yeah. I've heard, you know, Jerome Powell say that like we can only do so much on the monetary side. It's like, yeah, like you're you're right. Like, you know, you're looking at some of the stuff because we get asked about the student loan stuff all the time, right? Yes. Well, you talk about punchable, like, hey, we didn't have we didn't have monthly payments for how long? Like almost three and a half, three years. Yep. And now all of a sudden everybody's entering in the in the repayment and the, to reduce the shock of that, basically the Biden administration said, like, we're not going to enforce payments for another year. Like if you're behind, like it's okay, like whatever. All these things, uh, to your point, affect the business cycle. Yeah. With with the homes, that's why I alluded to earlier in 08, if they would have just let it crash. Mm-hmm. It would have been part of that cycle and it would have been better and stronger and more resilient. But instead, you know, I, I get I get heated on this stuff because it's like you you get guys that think they're they're smarter than these natural cycles and that they can manipulate it and that they're right. And what's the famous Fred line? Oh, we got it wrong this time, but we'll get it right next time. Oh, okay. And it's like they just don't learn. And now I'm starting to see things from like Fannie Mae and, and, and whatnot, where they're an FHA where they're starting to make the the lending guidelines less strict. It's like, oh, wow, we didn't learn anything in 08. Fantastic. Let, let's let's create, like, we have a home affordability problem. So instead of actually addressing the root cause, we'll just make it easier to get a loan. That's a good idea, since that's not going to do anything to home prices being artificially inflated. Makes sense. I mean, don't you think that somebody with a 660 credit score should have a lower interest rate than somebody with a 760 score? I mean, that makes sense. Why Why shouldn't yeah. we try that? We'll see what happens. Yeah, right. And a lot of people are like, well, when I say that to them, they're like, oh, well, you don't want low income people and middle income people to potentially own a house. It's like, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying if you got rid of all these bullshit programs that say they're doing that, in reality, they're actually doing the complete opposite. They're making right. it less affordable and they're putting them into a debt trap. Like if you're low income, maybe you just say, look, I can't buy a house right now. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. And then you wait for the next business cycle to clear out the trash, yeah. which is the winter season. The spring season comes and you have your opportunity. You're and guess what? Down. If they did that, the housing prices would drop. More people would be able to afford them. But hey, you know, what do I know, right? Like, we'll see. <laughs> I feel like this could be a three-hour Joe Rogan style podcast. So oh, yeah. we better, we better, <laughs> you and me could go forever, man. <laughs> I want to move on to the next two slides because yep. Joe, I'm going to, I'm going to try to sum up in two slides 
how it's humanly possible that we haven't seen a housing crash um, in spite of you know what's going on with with mortgage rates here. So yeah, perfect. Let, let's jump into this. So this is arguably the most important piece of data as it relates to the housing market that I believe is out there. Once you understand this slide and the next slide, it all starts to kind of make sense in addition to what Joe's talking about with all the manipulation of the of the business cycle and, and the money supply. So let's take this very slowly. The blue bars are household formations. What are household formations? Okay, I have two kids that live at my house. So it's myself, my wife, my two kids. We live in one household. This stuff is you know, tracked by the Census Bureau. When my kids get to an adult age, uh, which is 18 years old in one day in my book, uh, they're going to move out and start their own household. That'll be two new household formations. So instead of having one household, which we live in now, that'll be three households. Another way a household formation could be created is if there's a divorce, you go from one household to forming two households. So the blue bars are household formations. Another way to look at these blue, this blue bar is this is demand for housing because you either got to buy or you have to rent uh, or you have to live in your parents' basement or you live under a bridge. But if you are forming a new household, you have a demand for a housing unit. The gold bars or the orange bars are home completions. Now, this doesn't have to be single family homes. This is total residential completions. So this could be apartment units, two to four unit completions, or residential home completions. So this is your supply. So this is demand for housing. This is supply of residential housing. Now, let's go back to what happened in 2004. What we saw here was that the number of household formations demand was less than household completions supply of housing. And that was true. The gold bar was greater than, meaning that the number of household completions were greater than the demand for formations for four, 10 straight years. From 2004 through 2014, we built more homes than we had household formations. Supply exceeded demand for 10 straight years. But there was something highly unusual that happened in 2006 the number of household formations dropped from approximately 1.65 million to under a million. And then in 2007, the number of household formations demand dropped below 500,000 and stayed at roughly 500,000 from 2007 all the way to 2013, and then picked up a little bit in 2014. What the heck happened in 2006? Well, 33 years earlier, there was a law passed. There was a Supreme Court uh, decision called Roe versus Wade. This is when abortions were legalized in 1973. And in, in the 70s, contraceptives became kind of mainstream. This was a normal thing. So the birth rate 33 years earlier dropped. And as a lag effect on in 2006, we saw a huge drop in household formations. But here's the problem. The home builders didn't get the message. The home builders in 2006 built more completions, more residential home completions, 
residential home and apartments. I don't want to confuse anyone there. More completions than ever in the history of our country. So right when home builders were like, let's just throttle into this thing. Let's go, you know, put the pedal to the metal, baby. Let's let's build all the houses we can. We had this huge demographic pullback. And what happened there was for 10 years, we built more apartments and homes than we had household formation. And that created a massive overshoot in the peak of the of the Great Recession, right in that, you know, 2008, 2010 range. There were 4 million homes listed for sale. Today, the exact opposite's true. In fact, if you go back to 2015, you start to see that household formations, which is demand for housing units, has exceeded the supply for every year since 2015, except 2016 was a bit of an aberration. But 2015, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023, the number of household formations with the millennials moving out of their parents' house and coming to age, and then followed by that Gen Z, the formations has exceeded completions. So if you dump a whole bunch of potential demand on the market, even though housing is becoming less and less affordable, it doesn't matter. The people who are in that higher third of, from an economic standpoint still exceed the amount of supply and is causing um, values to go higher. I'll show you one more slide and I'm going to turn it back to you for comment, Joe. So people say, well, is this going to turn around? Well, these are this is data as of 2023. And what this shows you is there's 1.41 million residential units that includes apartments and single family completions going to be brought to market. 1.41 million residential units going to be brought to market in 2023 based on the pace that we were at as of August of this year. And current household formations is estimated at 2.07 million. So even in this year, we're essentially building 600,000 too few residential housing units to meet the amount of household formations. So this is the secret sauce. When you have, um, when you have not enough supply to meet the demand for eight straight years, you get this, this, this um, phenomenon of housing prices seeming to escape gravity in spite of interest rates going up. Yeah, no, definitely. And those, those two slides, I mean, that sums it up. And I'm looking at real estate stuff. That's one of the stats that I always just look at as that to kind of just put together a forecasted trend of, you know, what's going on. And then I come back in and I say, well, based on those house, household formations, like it's it's very easy from an analyst standpoint to say how many homes, how many starts and completions are gonna they're gonna be, right? Because the home builders, especially the public ones, they they put that data out there. Yep. Exactly. The household formation one, it's like, well, what's what what would stop that trend from going up? And really the only thing that I can think of is is affordability being not even on the home ownership side, but on the rental side with inflation and people have to move back in and, and condense households yes. and look at what's going on <clears throat> right now, just in the markets. And I'm like, well, is that happening? Well, inflation is cooling. People still haven't moved back in with their parents yet. So 
you know, I, I don't see the formations dropping. If anything, maybe staying stagnant. So to your point, you know, we're still going to have a housing shortage, essentially. Um, so, yeah, that was my comment on that. I'm going to talk about one more other thing to get your thoughts on that on like investment type of stuff. But any other any other thoughts you want to add in on, on all that for the residential side of things? No, I think I think we I think we got to the meat of the question of how is it possible that home prices continue to continue to go up? Um, unless you want to get into kind of where mortgage rates are headed, let's just turn this over to you. Whatever other questions that you you want to chat about. Yeah, I, I want to make sure we touch on an investment stuff because uh, obviously yeah. I get asked all the time, like, should I buy like a duplex, triplex, whatever it is. I actually wanted to talk to you, get your opinion about something that's coming down the pike. And I know this is coming down the pike because I know a couple companies and I know one specifically that I'm friends with. They have this up in Canada and they're just waiting for regulations to get passed here and get their licenses finalized so they can move here. Um, but they are, for example, this one specific company are allowing people to buy. It's basically like crowdfunding in the real estate, right? Mm -hmm. Where they can buy into real estate for as little as a hundred dollars. And what they're doing though, that's a little bit, this specific company that's different than other companies is that they're also creating a secondary market for it. So instead of having mm -hmm. to buy like a public REIT, if you want exposure, or if you want, instead of having to have like money to buy a duplex or getting friends and partners to buy duplexes with you. You can go on this platform and basically if you had a thousand dollars, you can buy or ten thousand dollars, you can buy you know one thousand dollars in ten different you know units. Yeah. And you're basically diversified out, but then they're also creating a secondary market where you can buy and sell those just like their their stocks. And at the same time, they're partnerships, so they're passed through. So you can pass through the income and the depreciation. Wow. And then also because they're actual fractional ownerships in real estate. You can actually take your gains from the market and do it and do an exchange in the future for something else on or off the platform. And so those types of investments I see just in, in the world of fintech that they're coming. In your opinion, just I know this is I'm just like throwing this on you. Like, what have you seen in that market? Do you think it's, you know, something that, yeah, this is something that I think is going to be bigger in the long run? No. Like, where do you kind of see all that? shaping out or what have you seen in the market from a like a just a tech standpoint in the real estate industry well i i think that the lack of affordability is going to force us to create some sort of ingenuity around and creativity around how how can people have a piece of the housing market you know what we didn't even talk about was the massive amounts of wall street money that is flooding into the residential uh, housing market, BlackRock, Vanguard, um, uh, Premium Resources. I mean, these companies have hundreds of billions of dollars that they are mobilizing into the residential single family home real estate market. And that's going to make housing continue to be unaffordable for more people. So the, the, the gateway to get into real estate ownership has to get more creative. We have to find ways for people that have smaller pieces of, of um, capital to, to enter that market. So I like it from that perspective because it makes it approachable and everybody needs like a first step that, that appreciates and grows. And then you can move to a bigger and you can continue to kind of grow that nest egg. My, my worry, Joe, and I'd like your thoughts on this, is counterparty risk, right? I mean, you could be investing in the greatest asset class of all time, 
But if the person who's running that business that you're investing in is taking out too much capital, isn't um, managing well, isn't putting enough money back into the properties to keep them well-maintained, like you have some counterparty risk there that I would really want to think through. I'm not sure how to exactly vet that. I'm sure you would have some advice there, but I love the idea. And I think there's going to be more creativity and ingenuity into this space. Another thing is, you know, what about um, tiny homes? What about 3D printing? What about manufactured homes that can be, you know, brought in in, in 10 pieces and erected? Like there has to be new technology that brings down the cost of housing or we have to create vehicles like you're talking about. So I think, I do believe that's the future. I just worry about the risks of the counterparty risk. Yeah, the counterparty stuff, that was one of my big things. And they're still working at that, but on, on the, a lot of that is transparency. So on this specific platform that I, I'm thinking in mind, I don't know how the other ones are working that I know, they built it on blockchain technology. So mm. the contracts as an owner, you, you can see it, you can own it, but then all the books, are also on blockchain. So anybody that's an owner and has that key, they have direct access to actually having full accounting records of everything anytime they want. Yeah. And then they have a professional management group that is basically overseeing the management of all the properties on a nationwide basis. And so that that's what they, that's their solution so far. Obviously there's gonna be some holes in that because there always is like stuff comes up on, you know, one property here or there. But it's like, that was their solution to those compliance problems. And to your point, it's like, you know, holy cow. But it's crazy because I remember something like two years ago, I want to say three years ago, at the World Economic Forum, um, one of the guys, like the second in command of that, basically said, you know, in 10 to 15 years, people won't be buying their own houses and they're going to like it. And it's like, I, I, could, I see that with the affordability and all these things happening. Like you said, either A, he's correct and people are not going to be able to afford it and they're going to have to do things where they're buying smaller pieces like what I just talked about or some other type of production is going to have to come into play where it's cheaper, like you said. Yeah. Um, well, so, yeah. I hope it's technology that gets us into people having cheaper affordability versus the, the World Economic Forum coming up with some other master plan that's all going to help us, right? Yeah, that, that's a whole nother two hour uh Podcast. That is another two-hour podcast, Joe. I, I was I was hesitating on saying that word, uh, those words, I should say, World Economic Forum, because I know where that can lead to. So <laughs> I hear you, brother. But I I think like as a takeaway, what I would say is that it's possible that housing continues to just run away from people, and it's my belief that in in terms of affordability, I mean, Joe. And, and it's my belief that 2024 is going to be a year where we see interest rates, if they peaked, I believe they're going to go down. Now, might they go back up to 2025 with another bout of inflation? Possible. But I think we're going to see a pullback in rates. And if, if you can make it work with your financial situation, even if you got to go a little farther out of town, even if you have to buy something smaller than what you'd hope for, even if you have to buy something not as nice, like my encouragement to people is, if you can make it affordable with the rates that I think are going to be coming in 2024, get a foothold into the housing market because it is possible that this continues to run away from an affordability standpoint, especially if we see inflation come back in 2025 and mortgage rates go back to 8%. 
Um, it, but if you can do it and it's affordable, get into the housing market because over long periods of time, and if you don't mind, Joe, I just want to share one last one last yeah, um, slide here. Over long periods of time, this is residential home prices, according to the S&P and Case Shiller and the BL, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, going back to 1942. And it shows every year prices were either up, indicated by green, prices were down, indicated by red, or prices were flat, neither up or down, indicated by white. And if you look at the 1940s, the 1950s, the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, 2010, 2020, there's never been a decade where housing prices were down. Even if you look through the 2000s, the Great Recession, we saw five years of declining values. 2007 was down 5%, 2008 was down 12%, 2009 was down 4%. But the decade of the 2000s ended up 66%. 2010, down 4%. 2011, down 4%. But the decade of the 2010s was up 45%. The winning record of, of real estate prices, up versus down, real estate prices have been up 73 years, down seven years, and flat one year since 1942. That's about a 90% win rate for real estate in terms of appreciation. So if you can afford it, if you're going to be there for a few years, if the economy is growing versus contracting, and if you can, and if the lower interest rates in 2024 make it within reach for you, put a foothold and get into owning assets this year ahead. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I will end on that too, uh, as, as just a piece of an analysis is, is you know, adding this, because I get asked about the stock market a lot, right? You show up those same statistics for the stock market. There are time periods where over a decade, there is 0% returns in the stock market. Like it happened from 98 to 08, for example, 2010 to 2020. Like it, there's multiple times where over a 10 year span, if you have your money invested in the stock market, you don't make anything. Yeah. Okay? And as you pointed out, that's not happened in real estate over a decade. And the reason why I wanted to bring that up is because a lot of you that are saying, hey, home affordability is extremely hard to do. You could do, I, I just put out a podcast probably about a month or two ago with a scenario of a buddy of mine, okay? Because he came to me with the same type of thing. And I said, knowing these statistics off the top of my head, I said, you're saying this is unaffordable because you're looking at a 30-year principal interest loan. And he's like, well, the real estate agent showed me a 5-1, a, a but I don't think that that's good enough because of the economic cycle. I was like, yeah, but because of the yield curve, the 10-1 is basically the same rate. Exactly. But your mortgage brokers don't typically show people that, right? Because they want to show the lowest possible rate. But the difference was like 0.02% or something like that. So he used a 10-1 to buy a house. And that, for those of you that don't know that, that's basically fixed rate for 10 years. And then after each year after that, it goes adjustable. But that gives you, even if there's an economic cycle, it gives you time for that cycle to play out. And chances are that even if you have to turn around and rent that property or whatnot or sell it, that during those 10 years, there will be something that does go up or the rents will increase so much that you can turn around and rent it and it will still cover the mortgage. So it doesn't it doesn't matter in that case. Obviously, everyday situation is different depending on down payments and what your goals with the house. But I'm glad that you brought up that statistic because a lot of people that I've been talking to, they're really scared to use a 10-1, but it's like, there's there's that's an opportunity, especially if you're an investor, that's an opportunity that you potentially go into and say, look, maybe this is a duplex that I'm buying or a triplex. And I'm going to live in part of it 
you know, potentially look at the 10 one instead of using like a, a traditional 30 year uh, principal interest loan. So I'll leave you with those thoughts. See if you got anything on that. Then uh, we'll close it on that one. No, Joe, I think that was a great finishing um, finishing comment. It's been a pleasure being with here with the Fitbucks community. And um, I hope you'll have me back again sometime soon, Joe. Yeah, absolutely. We'll probably tee it up right before spring. So see where everything's at then and we'll go from there. Sounds good, my friend. Well, thanks for all of you in the Fitbucks community who's listened in. And uh, feel free to reach out to me ever if I can answer direct questions for you. Absolutely. And as always, you guys like more, make sure you subscribe either to the podcast or the channel and uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, everybody. Yep. Thank you.